Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whatever time it might be when you're listening. Welcome to the latest episode of Criterion Cast. This is episode 173. We'll be looking at spine number 613. This is Ingmar Bergman's 1951 film Summer Interlude. Uh, this is one of Criterion's featureless discs that they released for a while there, where it's a, ch- a cheaper price point, but you didn't get any supplements with it aside from an essay. But the film itself, I think, more than stands up to it. Uh, I am a huge Ingmar Bergman fan, as we've discussed previously on the show, and so, of course, I just love this film to pieces. Um, joining me tonight to find out if they agree or disagree with that take, uh, we have David Blakesley. David, how's it going? Very well, Scott. Uh, Trevor Barrett, our resident Bergman hater, as we like to call him. <laughs> oh, come on. No, no, no. <laughs> well, I'll redeem myself tonight. <laughs> no, Trevor, you're wonderful. We love you. Uh, and for his first time on the show, I believe the mainline episodes in you, Eric Devon. Eric, how's it going? Yeah, honored to be here. Uh, I love Bergman, so you don't have to let me in with Trevor. <laughs> honored to have you. Uh, Thank you. Criterion describes this film as such, and I did look at the pronunciation of one particular buzzword here, so see if you can call it out. Uh, Touching on many of the themes that would define the rest of his legendary career, isolation, performance, the inescapability of the past, Ingmar Bergman's tenth film was a gentle drift towards true mastery. In one of the director's er great early female roles, Margaret Nielsen beguiles as an accomplished ballet dancer haunted by her tragic youthful affair with a shy, handsome student. Her memories of the sunny, rocky shores of Stockholm's outer archipelago, mingle with scenes of her gloomy present, most of them set in the dark backstage environs of the theater where she works. A film that the director considered a creative turning point, Summer Interlude, is a reverie about life and death that unites Bergman's love of theater and cinema. Uh, David and Trevor, you guys previously did an episode of The Eclipse Viewer on Bergman's early films, so I've seen a couple of those, but not as many as you have, so you can probably educate us and help us is to figure out whether Bergman is correct in finding this a creative turning point. I, I think it's pretty much in line with a lot of his early works, but I think it also uh, is a, probably the best example of that, uh, of his creative powers at the time. This film starts off with a really great example of his mastery as a dramatist, you know, for all of Bergman's reputation as kind of this guy of insights into the human soul and these piercing examinations of the psyche. Uh, he also just was a great dramatist, and we get this great early scene of kind of the bustling theater and Marie, uh, Mojbert Nielsen receives this mysterious package containing the diary of her former lover. And all right away, that gives us something to hold on to and something to kind of pique our curiosity and all these kind of great amusing characters kind of bumbling about throughout the theater. Um, but that totem kind of, uh, keeps us locked in and makes us wonder if she can retain her focus throughout the rehearsal and, all these little psychological needlings. And this eventually sends her on a path towards remembering uh, this wonderful summer she spent with a similarly attractive young man uh, and they in the blooms of early love and all the excitement and turmoil that comes with it. Uh, this is a film that I saw as a result of Criterion releasing it on Blu-ray, and I was glad that I took the plunge with it. I mean, it's an Ingmar Bergman film. How could I not? But uh, I think this is really... A, Really lovely film. I'll keep using that word throughout this episode, I'm sure. But it really has so many sensual qualities that we associate with Bergman in his early years. And a really, I think, absolutely tremendous central performance by Nilsson. Uh, David, let's start with your impressions. How does this kind of fit into Bergman's early filmography? And, well, do you like the damn thing? Oh, yeah, I, I love it. I mean, every time I've watched it, my admiration and appreciation just kind of intensifies um, yeah, I mean, 
you can definitely track Bergman's, you know, growth as an artist. I mean, this is a step forward from the films of early Bergman, but the early Bergman set has some really excellent stuff, and you, you really see artistic progression uh, making significant strides over the course of those five films, which were not his first five, but they were kind of representative of, 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 of that era. Uh, this one here does feel like there's a, a confidence, a poise, uh, you know, Criterion uses the word mastery. And I, and I think that, that this is definitely a film that, that holds up to the reputation, uh, maybe a, a, a recently uh, earned one, or at least relatively recently, because this is a film that doesn't really seem to get the kind of mention that, that you know, we talk about Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries and some of the later 50s and obviously the early 60s work when he was just at this incredibly high you know, altitude of, of achievement. Uh, here we really are uh, stepping into, uh, you know, a, a new level of, of, of accomplishment. Uh, but perhaps one of the reasons it's not as celebrated is that it doesn't feature some of the more iconic, you know, faces, uh, actors that, that, that Bergman, you know, kind of, you know, uh, put forth into prominence, you know, Max von Sydow, B.B. Uh, Anderson, Harriet Anderson, uh, Ingrid Tulin and, and and many others, Gunnar Bornstrand, you know, the, the, the famous Bergman troupe uh, really is not really present here. But these actors, um, you know, perhaps a little bit more obscure uh, by reputation, but are, I think, every bit as accomplished. Uh, but the, the way that this film is assembled, really even the motif of a of a performance, you know, it starts with a, the kind of a backstage scene, then gets into a dress rehearsal, and then it ends as a dance. You you really get the sense that this is a very uh, intricately sculpted narrative, with with all kinds of uh, you know subtleties and uh, and and features built into it that you may not miss, or you may not pick up on the first or second time through. But you just really appreciate the the artist artistry and the intricacy as you sort of see you know just how how smartly it's assembled. Yeah, it was well said. Uh, Trevor, I was giving you a hard time earlier. I know you're a fan of Bergman, <laughs> uh, but do you do you rank this above Seventh Sealed? How how big is it, this film for you? It, it's big. I do rank it above the Seventh Seal. And I think, you know, I, I'm actually with you in that Bergman is my favorite uh, director. And I think that one of the reasons that I usually try to push back a little bit on the Seventh Seal is that it gets such prominence that films like this seem to be a little bit forgotten. As David was saying, it, it's just not talked about very much. I, I wonder, I wonder how many people have picked it up and and gone through it and discovered how how wonderful it is, or you know how many think, oh, this is early Bergman. Uh, you know, despite its being his tenth film, um, you know, more films than many of our contemporary masters ever ma have ever made, and um, so I, I do always kind of want to promote these kinds of films more than the seventh seal but beyond that it is it is to me a, a just a wonderful film that i do like more than that one i, f I find it beautifully shot i find the uh, storyline very touching and compelling and it's it's just a it's it's a wonderful uh look at at life and passage of time and these idols that we create um as we go through life that uh you know, we start to idealize. 
Um, yeah, I love this film. I, I hadn't seen I'm kind of like you, Scott. I didn't watch it until it came out on Blu-ray. And when I did, I thought, wow, I have really, really missed out. This uh, this may be even one of the films that really kind of pushed it over the brink when I thought, you know, he was creating masterpieces from beginning, middle, end of his career. And um, I just hope more people get a chance to look at this one. Yeah, that's what I always tell people, even people who have seen, like, some of the masterpieces of Bergman. It's like, he has this stratosphere of these kind of, like, huge, like, transcendent experiences. And then he has a level below that, which are just, like, regular masterpieces. And then he has a level below that, or there's all these kind of great, quote-unquote, minor works that are still really strong films. Arik, had you seen this film before, or is this your first view? Uh, this is my first view. What did you think of it? Uh, I liked it a lot. Um, I I will also say that Bergman might be my favorite director, um, but I haven't seen uh, as much of his stuff. I sort of um, uh, savor it, so I, I don't. I don't. I never went through like a binge period because I, I just feel like uh, when I come to a Bergman film and I'm in sort of the, the right mood and, and and the right day, it's just so they're so incredible for me. They're so monumental that I don't. I don't. I'm not trying to rush through his filmography, if that makes sense. Um, so I haven't seen. I have the early Bergman set, but I haven't watched any of it yet. And so I can't comment on whether or not, you know, the departure from there. But I will say that, that it's very clear to me um, that, that he was on the path to, to some of those, you know, masterpieces we were talking about, like Seven Seal or Wild Strawberries or Persona or things like that. Um, but that he hadn't put it, maybe put it all, all together yet. So, I, I mean, I would respectfully disagree with Trevor and say that I don't think this film is better than The Seventh Seal. Um, there are, it is sort of interesting though because I was going to say, oh well, and it looks so beautiful in uh, The Seventh Seal, but it is the same, this is, they're both films are pre-Sven Nykvist, right? They're both Gunnar Fischer. Yeah. Um, this is a beautiful film. Like, I absolutely uh, found myself just staring at some of the, um, especially because you know, Bergman didn't do that much location shooting, and, and so uh, to see him in sort of this natural environment and with the, the water and, and like there's an early shot. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll go through where um, we're looking from the, the cabin out towards the water. And I just, I mean, I paused it and was just like staring at that for like 10 minutes. It could be a master class on how to, how to frame things. But um, you know, I, I think it, it shows a lot of the kind of themes that he was obsessed with and that I'm obsessed with them that he was moving into, but it, it does feel like more of a, um, I don't want to say trifle, but, but uh, you know, more of, like you said, sort of a everyday masterpiece as opposed to a, a transcendent masterpiece. But um, still, a, a ton here and, and very, very uh, worth watching. And I, I was really glad to get to see it. And I'm really glad they put it on Blu-ray because it is just such a beautiful film. Yeah, absolutely. They kind of make apologies in the booklet about the transfer, but I think it looks great. And it's hard to make this film look bad, I think. I'm glad you touched on the beauty of it because, yeah, I think this is kind of up there as some of Gunnar Fischer's best work. Uh, so and the shooting conditions of this were reportedly quite rough. They had even though the Swedish summer is a narrow slice of their year, it's usually pretty reliable as far as weather goes. But apparently they were chasing clouds away basically at all times and having to run after the sun anytime it appeared around the island they were shooting at. But uh, Bergman is such a, especially in his early work, such a sensual director, and not just the sexual angle, although that is certainly there in these early films. Uh, but just you can feel every like grass. All the grass against the skin, all the, the wind in the air, you can smell the environment, just every element of it, not just visually, but the sound design is gorgeous. The score by Bergman's frequent composer, whose name I wrote down up here, Eric Nordgren, uh, is great, lovely, those strings. And you just really, just I, I just completely feel this film through and through. Uh, and this is something that Jean-Luc Godard kind of highlighted 
in his kind of long piece on Bergman around the time that his films were first getting released kind of in France. Uh, he wrote, a Bergman film is, so to speak, a 24th of a second transformed and extended into an hour and a half. It is a world compressed between two blinks of the eye, the sadness between two beats of the heart, the joy of living between two claps of the hand. You know, as much as Bergman's, like, thought of as this very intellectual director, it's all, to me, the reason that I latched onto him right away was all this kind of sensual information. Have you guys found that? Yeah, I agree with you. That, that And I love that quote because it's something I've never been able to articulate quite that well, obviously. But it is something that it, you always feel. There's there's the late scene here where she's sitting in, in, you know, in the dark and the faucet is dripping. And man, you can just feel that space and time um, as she's going through it. Or just like the floorboards creaking beneath her when uh, she's practicing ballet in the attic. I love that little shot there. Yeah, that close-up of her feet as she's going through her different steps there, and yeah, yeah that 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 earthiness. And, and you, you've mentioned some of the production aspects. Uh, the editor—I don't even know who the name is. I haven't looked it up. But the editing, and just usually you don't like editing that calls attention to itself. But really, it's just so exquisite the way these kind of whatever you want to call them, those pillow shots, those those kind of uh, you know outdoor sequences, those kind of transitions that really put you into this kind of nordic summer atmosphere yeah they they're just stunningly serene and, and beautiful and, and so well composed and every shot is is just exactly where the camera is supposed to be and i think in some of bergman's memoirs he, he mentioned this is a film where he felt like he was just in that zone like the camera the framing everything just hit that sweet spot and that's it, you, you, you definitely sense that here. Whether he had to do multiple takes or whether he just got it right on the first time, who knows? But but everything just comes together you know, so so marvelously here, as we you know, as the atmosphere is created, and then you get into the personalities, the interactions of the people. Uh, this is where I mean he he'd always had a an affinity for the close-ups and the textures of the human face and the expressions and and the subtleties of, of just those small little movements, but here you just really sense that that he's he's caught on to something and that's that's kind of what makes this movie a little bit you know sort of getting into that, some of that beyond words aspect because the the emotions that he's capturing here uh, about a, a a young woman. Um, you know, experiencing her first love, experiencing the the thrill and the, the the power and the passion of her life as she's coming into her own artistically, uh, sexually and emotionally, and then you know having it all sort of torn away from her in one horrendous moment, and then and then the aftermath. Uh, as Majbrit Nilsson just turns in a stunning performance. I mean, she she plays very convincingly. You know, a teenager just coming into her own, and then a woman, you know, in her late twenties or maybe even early thirties, uh, who's now looking back and seeing, you know, you know, you know, what she's experienced, what she's lost, and the impact that 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 crisis had upon her. And and here's a woman who's really, you know, it, it's a it's a an amazing performance because she really pulls off both roles at different stages of life, you know, without without really having to resort to artifice. You really feel like, oh, this is a teenage woman, you know, in those scenes. And then here's an older woman with a history, with a past, and with an uncertain future uh, sitting in front of you trying to sort all this out. Um, I'm not even exactly sure how she did it, but it's it's very impressive. 
Bergman seemed to make a lot of, he seemed to either have a tremendous confidence in her or just feel comfortable demanding a lot because the next film they did together, Waiting Women, uh, this film takes place over two time periods. That film has her play in three time periods and she's only like a quarter of what that film is about. (laughs) (laughs) I think that um, uh, Bergman gets unfairly described as a sort of an an intellectual director. And, And obviously he was to some degree, like there's a lot of big ideas in his work and certainly like things like the uh, opening piece of persona maybe goes in that direction a little more. But I think that we, people forget just how much uh, humanity and, and sort of humanism and even humor that he uh, played with in his films, especially uh, in this film, I thought there were, you know, echoing what, what some of you said um, there's just so much uh, uh, sensual nature to the film. Like, like you mentioned, Scott, like there's a, a moment where um uh, she goes to kiss uh, her her boyfriend, and and the shot is just like from from the bottom, and she's just like rising up on her ballet flat, uh, her ballet point shoes. Oh yeah, and then one leg in the air. Oh my god! And it just, I mean, I just took my breath away. Not just that it's a beautiful shot, but that it's just a very, I don't know, it's a very human moment. I guess I, I don't know, but um, I think that uh, I wanted to kind of echo what what David said about the incredible job that. Um, that uh, Madge Britt Nelson had to do. I mean, it's a very difficult challenge to play convincingly play like a, basically a 15 year old and a 28 year old, I think are the ages in the film. And also on top of that, to play someone who is extremely open and someone who is extremely closed. And I think that that uh, aspect of it actually helps her performance in the sense that like when she's in the present, she's just very cold and, and distant. And that gives her a certain amount of age anyway even without you know tricks and things and then when she's playing younger she's um much more kind of open and and playful and and wide-eyed and and she just does a a, absolutely phenomenal job of 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 doing that and even then at the you know at the end she kind of brings some of that back and it's 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 great right to see that kind of open up so just phenomenal yeah Yeah, and bergman and fisher kind of frame her perfectly in both uh ends of the thing i love that kind of long take of her getting ready in the morning for a swim where it's just essentially a medium shot that moves to tracker, but it just relies totally on her to captivate our attention. She completely does. And then on the later end of things, they have these kind of rigid shot patterns where she's very carefully posed, you know, maybe as a professional dancer would be naturally. And that kind of echoes the two sides of her experience. Definitely. And I, I like how it it also echoes just the themes of the film. I mean, here you have this uh, very open uh, young girl in in summertime and just 13 years later so a very brief period she feels like everything is shutting down that her life is is coming you know not to an, a literal end she's not in danger of dying yet but a lot of the things that she had looked forward to back in that summertime you know her career as a, as a dancer which is she's a very um, uh, kind of uh, meanly uh Reminded of at the end uh, by Stieg Olden's uh, ballet master that, you know, hey, that's coming to an end, too. And what are you going to do after that? Um, You know, her love life, all these things that she was once just so full of life and excited about are to her coming to a close at this later time, which is only 28. And um, I I love how this takes place in the Swedish uh, uh, summertime when, you know, it's a very brief period anyway, only uh, uh, about a month and a half to two months 
time between just these very harsh conditions and cold winters. It's, I, I imagine kind of like Michigan, David, uh, from <laughs> I see. You had to go there, huh? <laughs> but it's just beautiful how... I can relate, though, yeah, yes. Yeah, how she, you know, this these moods um, of the summertime and of that beautiful period, how boisterous it is, the camera capturing all of that light and and all of the water you can see the bottom of the of the lake when they're at the very first shot when when she is getting into her rowboat um just before she's kind of uh going to start uh her friendship and uh eventual romance with heinrich um she gets into that rowboat and you can see the 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 bottom of the lake from from that angle it's just crystal clear and the sun is shining up in the right corner uh, I mean, it's beautiful and, and filled with just this joy. And, um, you know, when she's uh, in her older stage, at, when she's 28, you know, it's it's much darker. She's wearing a coat through a lot of that. It's raining. Clouds are in the sky. It's darker. And um, so I just I just think the film, everything comes together in it. So, you know, I I I I. I, I don't care if, if um, people disagree with me because I, I <laughs> so I, I'm, or should you? I'm not trying to uh, to to start like a well I disagree with you too Arik <laughs> that's not what I mean here but to me um, this film does bring all the elements together beautifully and I while I think a lot of people can call it a primer for um, you know later Bergman I'm here he's there look at that they're picking wild strawberries um, that old woman looks just like death um, there's the yes, priest like playing chess with an, another woman who reminds him of death you know all of these um all of these things you know the mirrors even even when heinrich opens his eyes when you think he's a corpse basically um you know that just brings uh, to mind uh, later bergman works and and so i can see a lot of people going oh look he's playing with all of this but to me it it's it's not playing it it, it functions as a as a very solid film that while i would never wish away those later films i do like so many of them so much and even more than summer interlude um i i hate to say that this is just him kind of fiddling in the sandbox uh where he's about to build his masterpieces i do think that uh, it all just comes together so beautifully. What do you guys think of the other performances? I mean, we've talked about how much you love Nilsson in this role. I'm having a hard time, though, really latching on to anyone else. You know, I think uh, Berger Malmström, uh, who plays Heinrich, is pretty good. He's, he certainly carries himself very well physically and conveys kind of the shyness of it. Um, but I, I don't really see another performance in here that's kind of as captivating. Do you guys agree or disagree? I would only call out uh, Georg Funkqvist, maybe is his name, maybe. I don't know. I've been told I'm very bad at pronouncing Swedish names. But um, he played Uncle Erland, and uh, I'm, I'm going to call him out. Obviously, I don't think anyone comes close to, to, to Marie, but that character was so loathsome and disgusting and foul, but believably so, completely believably so, that I, I, will, call, I will give him kind of props for that like he's such a oh, such a horrible influence such a vile character i thought he did a great job because i just i just hated him the entire time yeah, i was he's, watching the film he's a vulture just kind of you know swirling around looking to exploit a young woman that he yeah. sees as vulnerable and of course when she's you know tragically left alone there he is ready to pounce in for the kill and and yeah, it, you know, we've been talking about how beautiful and how how dreamlike and exquisite this film is. But yeah, there are definitely some dark and menacing sides, and I think that's what again what gives this film its texture. It's not just a 
a, a romantic summer idyll, you know, a, a beautiful, you know, beach scenes and, and the, you know, Swedish, you know, landscape uh, in that you know, blissful time of year. There, there's definitely dark clouds and, and menace and, and disillusionment that, that uh, kind of cuts through everything, which makes the beauty of those moments, you know, you know, all the more intense and all the more heartfelt because you you realize exactly how fleeting they are and and that that's what you know causes us to identify with with the pain that that marie experiences because you know all this promise all this beauty all this you know all these hopes being fulfilled are just so swiftly you know stripped away and what she's left with, you know, is a career and, an, 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 at least, a chance at artistic prominence and a fulfillment of all the, the work that she's put in, and and the production of beauty. I mean, the uh, the ballet sequences really are very, very striking and and very nicely done. And, and again, the the cinematography and the staging, uh, Bergman's theatrical sense of just again where to where to you know put the lens and and where to catch the perspective have the you know, have the dancers uh, receding into the background and approaching the foreground and the formations that they make. It, it's it's all very nice, but uh, yeah, but there is there's this this bolt of pain that just shoots through everything too, and that's that's what I you know that's that's the message or that's the impact of the film that that seeps through is is uh, you know there's a lot of beauty to be behold, but it it's almost like purchased with this with this price of. Uh, emotional agony and torment uh, that sort of makes it possible, but also, you know, even breaks the spell of just of how sweet it it is or how sweet it might have been. Um, Scott, you you, you brought up uh, Berger Mal- Malmsten's Heinrich mm-hmm. and um, how he, you know, there's not a lot of interest there. Though you would think that as the romantic uh, <laughs> interest he, there would be. Um, but I actually think that's another strength of the film as well. Um, Ber- Bergman, I've seen this a few places where he, he kind of said, I had no interest in the young, naive student um, Heinrich. He was a coat hanger on which to hang the plot, basically, and get things moving. But I, I kind of like that he's that way because he, in, in many ways, even in even in the film, even in um, Marie's life, he's not real anymore. He's just an idealized part of the past that... Um, you know, much like that summer um, is forever in the past. Um, he, you know, he, he didn't end. He's forever youth. He's forever all of these ideals and promise. And we never even get to read any pages of his diary to get to know much of his inner life other than the fact that, you know, he had intimations of his uh, imminent demise. And that's about it. For the most part, he's just this presence that you know, is a little bit too good to be true and a little bit too idealized to be incredibly interesting other than as an idea. Um, but again, I kind of think that that was a, a really uh, kind of a strength of the movie, maybe an unintentional one, um, but and, and maybe I'm making excuses just to keep proving that this is such a wonderful masterpiece. <laughs> um, but I did, I did really like that aspect. I, I kind of feel like had he been much more... Uh, a presence in the film it might have dis- dispelled the uh, the uh, allure of that uh, you know summer that never that you know like many idols that just kind of never was the way that she must remember it now it never was quite that good that promising that free from worry um, that open 
but that's how we look at those kinds of things a lot of times in life. And so I, I, I did like that aspect of it. Yeah, I do like uh, Henrik's little jealousies over Uncle Erlen, though. Just uh, as teenage boys will do, looking for any excuse to bring jealousy into the equation. We're uh, getting back to Uncle Erland. I like the makeup design of him a lot. He kind of has this like design to his hair and eyebrows that give him kind of a devilish quality and kind of immediately cause our soon to be proven true suspicions. Um, but he certainly has his moments of humanity. You know, there's that scene where he gets drunk and everyone's kind of trying to ignore him, which kind of sets up the way Marie can kind of compact and isolate uh, any sort of unpleasantness. Uh, but his description of remembering Ramuri's mother dancing for him is really kind of beautiful. He has that line, which is like, there were red geraniums and the clocks ticked away. It's all these kind of poetic lines. They're kind of great. And then it moves so well into Marie's uh, voice over description of the scene following and uh, her anticipation of she and Heinrich making love for the first time. And it kind of reminds us that this affair that they're having uh, is not so dissimilar from the affair that uh, Erlen must have had with Marie's mother. And, you know, no matter how badly things end up, you know, it kind of ties them both together in that way. And both having this kind of young love and on the brink of something beautiful, this sensation that gets torn away from them and kind of leaves them in sort of misery. And that kind of, I think, humanizes him in a roundabout sort of way. Yeah, good. Uh, that's a, a really strong point because... Um, he's the one who in the end is like, look, nothing ever matters in the long run. You know, all of these things are taken away from you. So just, you know, whatever. And it's an idea that... Build the wall, yeah, basically. Yeah, it's an idea she wall. has to try to overcome, uh, but that she's also susceptible to just to keep that kind of protection and this kind of, uh, you know, who cares mentality that allowed her to, as she says, forget Heinrich. Um, you know, she. That's a. I think that's a very powerful part of the film where she just realizes this is how I. I forgot him. This real life person is now just uh, you know this kind of figment of my imagination that I I let go for a long time in my life. Right. I think that's pretty crucial. Is that this this diary kind of reawakens old memories? It's not like she's been pining away for him for all these thirteen years. She's kind of. You know, she went on she worked hard she lost herself in her art then she took this you know kind of ambiguous long trip <laughs> with uncle Earl, uncle erlin and he said well what was the what was the compromise what was the negotiation she made to go on that trip and how did that set her up for you know the subsequent years of her life and so is this memory of henrik kind of a uh kind of a last grasp of of those lost teenage years as she really is entering into what probably at that point, you know, when you're 28, you know, hitting 30 or so seems like, you know, midlife crisis time or whatever. So and especially when you're a woman and you're not married and you your career, you're kind of aging out of your profession, there is this, you know, vast uncertainty about what, what happens next. And I think that's that's what, you know, Bergman's trying to get us in touch with is and not even just the plight of women per se or artistic creatives, but you know, just people in general as they kind of make that passage into serious adulthood <laughs> or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, she doesn't even remember. I mean, she really doesn't. She runs into the, the, the priest or the reverend or whatever, and she doesn't even remember having seen him since she had her confirmation. But she spent that, you know, had that moment with him at the at the house with her, with Henrik's uh, uh, caretaker, whatever she was, aunt, whatever. Um, so it was like definitely a theme of uh, of her having completely blocked out um, 
uh, everything that had happened. It's an interesting point, Scott, that you that you make I, I, that I hadn't thought about until you said it, which is that um, you know Erland is a really a despicable guy, right? Like he's he's an older man who's you know basically harassing a fifteen year old girl whose mother he was you know he previously dated. He's giving her terrible life advice in terms of um, you know per, you know protecting herself by disassociating herself with everyone else in the world basically you know he's just a bad figure but you can kind of see in that moment in that one moment with the piano i see what you're saying where it's like he obviously went through some a true you know situation much like uh marie is about to go through and and that seems to have informed you know who he is and kind of as you said turns him from being sort of a what could be just a a caricature of of just a creepy lecherous old man into something a little more a little more interesting and and deeper in terms of um just the pain that he went through speaking yeah, of he's just passing on his own survival skills if you will yeah. yeah uh speaking of caricatures i want to get into the ending of this film a little bit which i think is the film's only weak spot i don't really think the scene with uh what is the magician's name capellius uh i don't think that scene adds a whole lot and it goes on for an awful long time for as little as it contributes in my opinion and then certainly kind of her final realization that she's totally happy after all without any sort of i don't know i don't don't think that transition is very strong for how much she's just gone through Uh, trevor i'll start with you since you seem to like this one the best of us uh does this ending work for you? And if so, can you can you talk me into it? I'd love to get on board. Oh, okay. A lot of pressure here. Let's see if I can do this. <laughs> I'll, I'll help you, Trevor. I feel I feel I like the ending. Okay. Um, I I don't think the ending is as strong as a film. It kind of reminds me of, but that goes in a completely different direction, which is Winter Light. Um, the the Stieg Olin character. And uh, speaking of actors, I do also really like Stieg Olin in this, but that could be because I. I really grew to like him in the early Bergman set, but he plays the ballet master and kind of comes there at the end to, to give her a wake up call. That's both uh, devastating because he's telling her some truths She does not want to confront that, you know, Hey, you're about done. You know, your summer, you're, you're well into fall, even though, again, like I said earlier, you're only 28, your career's about over. What are you going to do next? You know, basically your brief summer passed a long time ago and and yet she finds in that some kind of strength that allows her to confront her boyfriend and um, and kind of turn herself around a little bit. And I don't think it's just what uh, the, the ballet master has to say there at the end. I think it's also um, just that she went back to the island and visited this place for the first time in a long time. And that kind of all brought forth a culmination. Um, but the the Stiegel in character, as he's sitting there kind of uh, talking to her and how long it goes, um, the, I, I bring that uh, connection to uh, Alan Edvald's uh, Algot Frovic character in uh, Winter Light when he's walking around with Gunnar Bjornstrand and basically saying, you know, this really long um, but but really profound and, and, um, and interesting speech about, you know, his own disabilities and the life of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his pain and suffering. And, uh, you know, it, it does go on for a little while, um, but it brings about in uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand's character this uh, realization. Um, I do – Winter Light's probably my favorite movie of, of all time, so I, I think it pulls things together 
better than Summer Interlude, but I think it's to a similar um, effect. And and I don't mind that Summer Interlude goes a little bit more into the happy side, you know, with that kiss and the, the ballet slipper uh, shoe coming up as she before she dances away. Um, because I think that this film is looking for that light and, and it's, uh, it's appropriate um, in, in the context of this film for her to find it again. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I'm being particularly convincing. I think, I think some of my love for this film is, is just a, a lot of personal things. And, um, you know, I do think it comes together all beautifully. Uh, but I also do recognize what you're saying that maybe it's a little bit too facile there at the end. Um, considering her personality and that she has had that wall built for 13 years uh, following what must have been a series of um, traumatic uh, moments in her life uh, that only began with the death of Heinrich and went on to her affair with Uncle Erland and whatever he did to her. And, you know, for her to kind of uh, break that all down uh, maybe is a little bit too simple, especially in, in light of how well a Bergman handles all the nuances in later films when he is having a character kind of transition. Um, he seems to make room for a lot of ambiguity and a lot of failure. You know, if a character might be ending happy, but you know that, you know, still going to have to uh, return to the pain in 10 minutes. Um, in this in this film, he doesn't quite let the, the shade come over at, at, at quite that soon. So, so um, yeah, I, I, I do like it, um, but I... I, I, it's not, yours is in a position that I, um, am like, oh, you're just wrong there. I think that uh, it makes what, what you see in it and it not quite working makes a lot of sense too. Ark, am I just wrong? <laughs> well, I, you know, maybe, I don't know, <laughs> but, uh, I, I think for me, uh, and I want to watch the, just the ending again, now that we've discussed this, cause I, I, I guess I got something a little different from the speech that the ballet magician master guy gave than maybe even Trevor did. Uh, and I want to kind of rewatch it and see maybe if I was, if I misunderstood him, but um, m- m- what I saw and what, what I got from what he said was that he was kind of, he was almost pulling another Erland in the sense of like saying to her, um, well, you know, all you have is your, is your art and that's all you are supposed to have. You're just a dancer and you just dance. And even though it's ending, in eight years and there's you really have nothing after that so all you can do is is just be kind of a dancer and and focused on your craft really quickly i don't i don't i didn't want to suggest that he had good intentions uh through his (laughs) speech i think it's the way that she takes it not necessarily that he's come and said you know this is what she needs to hear to get beyond this so anyway sorry to interrupt (laughs) oh yeah and sorry i don't i hope i'm not throwing you under the bus here I, i i just um second guessing myself but I, you know, for me, like I said, he was sort of saying to her, you know, just focus on your art, be an artist. And I think she was, it was an interesting moment for her to hear that because when, when Uncle Erland, like all the years earlier had said, you know, uh, put a wall up, I'll show you how it was in the wake of, of, of the pain. And she did. And then, you know, even though she's bottled it up and she maybe hasn't dealt with it. And so maybe just a little bit, she cries or whatever she does 13 years later, it doesn't seem like enough the pain you can hide the pain away in that way it's not a it, it takes forever and something has to happen to break it but she did do some amount of like sort of background processing of all of it for all those years and so for her to hear that and then 
at a different time when she's when she's just gone through sort of this memory and reawakened sort of the happiness of everything and realized how much good there was in that situation, not just the bad. Um, and then she hears this again and kind of rejects it at, in a sense. And the the one part I do agree with you, Scott, is that the, I just don't like that boyfriend that much. Uh, and so I, I, you know, Bergman wants me to say, okay, well, he's he's not a great boyfriend, but it's because she refuses to be with him really, right? She's not open to being with him. He, she kind of kept him at arm length, but he's just not likable enough for me to kind of pull that off. But, but I want to, so I'm going to allow him to sort of just be there as like the sense of like reminding her that, you know, I, I, you don't really want me, you know, and she's like, Oh, I don't really want you. But then she kind of decides, you know what? I never really gave you a chance. I don't even know if I want you. And so I'm going to let you read the diary so that you know, kind of the, intense pain that I've been through and then I can potentially have a relationship with you that is legitimate and real and isn't just sort of me getting whatever I want need from you that isn't really connected to us as people so I think that you know and then obviously he shows up at the at the place the next day and with a different understanding of kind of who this woman is and it's that part is a, a little facile but you know she's she's kind of ready to they're gonna try it out and maybe six months later they they break up because he is kind of a dick, but, um, you know, potentially at least she's able to be in a relationship again. And so maybe they'll make it work or maybe it'll be somebody else or maybe she'll never find love, but she's open again for the first time in a really, really long time. So for me on that level, the, the ending works. Yeah. What do you think about that, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll have to watch it again, but you guys may have talked me into it. I definitely, definitely threw some uh, angles at it that I hadn't considered before. <laughs> same, right same for me, Arik. Um, I appreciate that insight because I, it, that resonates with me. And um, I was going, yes, 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 while you were saying it. So. <laughs> Thank you. I do sort of like uh, how simple David is, you know, and how she comes to accept that he doesn't have to be, you know, her next great love. He can be, you know, a stable, decent guy who's there for her, even though he knows all these uh tragic things about her past you know there's something kind of simple and sweet about the romance towards the end that i do appreciate it seems to me like a very human um boyfriend you know like like many of us just a little, a little stupid um a little <laughs> selfish uh, uh a little bit ignorant of the of the feelings that may be affecting someone that we want to care about and um you know he seems very much that way whether this is going to be a successful relationship or not i um and and whether or not he's a great person or character for her i I liked that aspect of him uh the one last thing i wanted to get to in my notes anyway and i'll turn it over to you guys after that anything we didn't miss anything we missed along the way but uh this was released in the u.s in 1954 uh as illicit interlude and Mm. uh featured an outright lie in its promotional materials claiming that uh, majbrit nilsson could be seen swimming in the nude but rather the distributor had inserted unrelated scene shot at a nearby nudist resort in the States. Uh, Thus uh, continuing a long proud tradition of overtly sexualizing Swedish imports uh, (laughs) that was especially prominent in the early 50s and we'll be uh, discussing in a few weeks uh, Summer with Monica, which was probably the worst uh, offender or victim of that, depending on how you look at it. Um, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but otherwise I can turn it over for anything we haven't gotten to. Well, it it is kind of just odd reading old reviews and having to sort of you know skip over illicit interlude and you just sort of think of this 
kind of leering, lascivious, ooh-la-la type of, you know, uh, allure that's kind of being attached to these films. And and I I can't help but think that Bergman sort of eventually got wind of this marketing scheme and says, oh, is this what you want? Okay, I'll I'll give you something. And that (laughs) that led to some of the frankness of his, uh, you know, late 50s, early 60s works that, uh, you know, kind of pushed cinema into some new frontiers, especially as far as, you know, respectable, uh, you know, Middle brow, uh, middle class type of entertainment was concerned. Well, uh, yeah, and I mean, uh, well, I was just going to quickly say whatever you want to say about Bergman, he definitely has his kind of pervy sexual side. He definitely likes his attractive young women. Well, oh, and, yeah. and 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 Bergman had a very conscious sense that films have to be entertaining. I mean, yeah. uh, I I just picked up a a book of essays, Ingmar Bergman, Artist Journey. Uh, it was just at a bookstore on Sunday. For a little bit, and it's a it's a really nice collection. I think it's got that same Godard essay that you were referring to uh, earlier, Scott. But it, you know, Bergman just talks about he has an obligation. It's not even just the sense of wanting to, but it's his duty to keep the audience entertained. And again, that's just one of those kind of counterpoints to the the stuffy or whatever reputation that Bergman has is that he he really is trying to pack his films full of intriguing elements and maybe. Maybe audiences have shifted a little bit, but uh, I, I, I always find his films ceaselessly entertaining and fascinating. Not everyone a masterpiece, but there's always interesting stuff going on. And, uh, yeah, that's that's it's right there in front of you. Now, what I was going to say, that the film, based I'm looking at it on Wikipedia. There's a cover of the the British DVD cover, and it has a rating of 15, which I thought, What? Uh, maybe this is one that has in uh, modern times. Really, that's what this it, has. Maybe they have the version that Scott was referring to. <laughs> 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 but if not, I couldn't think of anything in it that would make it fifteen, other than the part where he says, um, "You know, I'll I'll move to between your thighs," and uh, you know that kind of uh, earthy part that uh, that's there. But other than that, there's really nothing in here. It, it's very sensual, um, but not in a lascivious way, as as, as David was saying, um, but yeah, uh, maybe that was just to be. <laughs> I, well, I, I don't know. I I, I couldn't uh, couldn't understand it. But when Scott brought up the this point and kind of uh, packaging this as one of those early fifties Swedish films, <laughs> you know, um, maybe that uh, led over to this rating. But yeah, it, it looks like a modern DVD cover that has a rating stamped uh, at fifteen. So very interesting. It's a particularly ugly one. Yeah. I, mean, if it I were can't like imagine too cover. many early teens who would find this film all that interesting. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm off base the, there. Well, you're, this I isn't think a film right, made for but, uh, children, obviously. <laughs> but I don't know if, you know, I, don't, I never think of... be protected from anything. Yeah, I never think of the ratings people as thinking, well, I don't think they'll be interested more than, oh, they should not watch that. Um, so that was surprising well, to me. But um, anyway, yeah, I don't have many more, more thoughts on that. I'm excited to, to get more into this when we talk about Summer with Monica. There is a certain amount of, uh, shall we say, uh, acceptance of teenage sex that maybe True. Could I guess mean that, that could be rating. part of it. Yeah, I mean they're definitely chill, you know they're definitely underage, you know, yeah. all that. So yeah. maybe that has something to do with it. Um, oh, I did miss this part of my notes. This film contains uh, the only bit of animation I know of in his films outside of Persona. That's a little fun bit. Well, yeah, yeah and that's a another little. Part piece of entertainment and and you know again i, I kind of rewatched that animation piece tonight and it's like yeah so 
at the very end of that clip, the you know the male character, the little male cartoon, kind of gets squashed into nothingness. So there's kind of a a portent of things to come, I guess. <laughs> it's but it's it is it's an odd little feature, and uh, you know, just one of those kind of little left field surprises that uh, you know maybe we've spoiled it for somebody out there. But yeah, <laughs> you, you never exactly know what's coming, and it's it is it's, it's kind of this surreal little moment because they're they're sitting in an apartment listening to records. And they just look at the uh, you know the the jacket you know, cover, just kind of a paper sleeve that the that the uh, you know, the vinyl sits in, and all of a sudden this little animated segment just sort of pops up out of nowhere, and it's never explained or exactly what is that, <laughs> but it's it's there, and I guess there's probably some little interesting symbolisms, maybe a little piece that could be unpacked and further deciphered. Oh, but uh, I thought so. Yeah. I think the idea is that they're drawing it. Yeah. Okay. That they're because they're holding a pencil and they keep passing it back and forth, so they're. You know the animation, obviously no, but they're. I think the animation is them looking at the drawings and and kind of reading a story into it, right? Yeah, but they're passing it back and forth, and they're drawing. And it's interesting because I think he draws himself being squashed, which is, which is sort of interesting because he does kind of have that prediction or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think it fits into what you were saying about uh, Bergman wanting to be an entertainer more than anything else. Which I find it's really interesting to me that that uh, when if you achieve a certain level of uh, cultural importance or importance like as a "Quote unquote true artist or an intellectual artist, then people suddenly don't want it to be okay that you were interested in entertaining people. It's like with, uh, with you're serious all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, it's like with Shakespeare where they're like, oh, he he wanted to be the greatest writer in the history of English. It's like, no, he wanted to put butts in the seats at a theater. And, exactly. You know, let's yeah, not there were no that. residuals okay. in his time. He was just getting paid for what you did yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Time. And and that does that's okay. That doesn't that doesn't take anything away from the art. Yeah, I kind of think of that animation scene, and maybe again I'm stretching um, as part of the you know idealization of the past, as part of the this image that what she's remembering didn't quite happen the way that she's remembering it. You know, maybe uh, Heinrich never did have such a downcast thought that I think I'm going to die young. You know, maybe that's her kind of casting that on it and that animation sequence. Yeah, kind of as David said, very surreal, which would work into that. thinking back and just kind of almost dreaming parts of it. Um, uh, I may be off base there. I think it's, it's also entertaining and just kind of whimsical and fun. Um, but, uh, but yeah. I do it, like the idea of her as an unreliable narrator. That is kind of an interesting idea, though. Yeah, and I, I like movies that kind of play with the idols and, and show them in a little bit of artificial light. Like um, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, for example, is one that I think of as uh, an extended idol at the beginning when the relationship is going strong. I mean, you've got those just vibrant colors, and I know that there's more to it than, you know, just an idol. It's a musical and it's beautiful, but, um, you know, there's a, bu- there's a little bit of artifice and artificiality in how it's presented that's very self-aware. Like when they, in our, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg again, when they get on the bicycle and are both standing there and it just kind of wheels itself down the down the street. <laughs> it didn't happen like that in real, you know, it really couldn't have. But it just kind of works for the mood and the um, the fact that they're not part of this world right now. You know, the the love that they're experiencing and sharing does, does kind of transcend uh, physics and and uh you know all this all this realism that we sometimes expect in a film and um so uh, another maybe stretching relationship there but uh uh two films that i love because of their exploration of an idol summer interlude and the umbrellas of sherborg and i i kind of see that similarity in their artifice there that's a great point uh like i said i've come to the end of my notes so i can kind of go around and get 
We'll make some final thoughts on any other points you guys want to inject. Uh, David, did we miss anything? Well, you know, uh, you you already mentioned this is one of the lower price point, uh, you know, Criterion editions. It's got a really nice book, and I, I guess I just wanted to uh, give a little, you know, props to the people who selected this still images, uh, because you know, just again, sometimes picking up those books is almost like rewatching the movie in five minutes or whatever. Just you know, reading the essay, but but there's just a really nice selection of stills that. That really captures some of those, uh, you know, sublime moments of the film, and uh, you know, both both on the, the 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 ecstatic as well as the tragic, and it's just nice to have a booklet, you know, for a twenty nine ninety five SRP uh, Blu ray release. Uh, this is one that I think has a very you know very good place in people's collections. And again, if you're any kind of a a Bergman fan, this is this is not. A, you know, uh, sort of optional trifling stuff. This this was very well selected as a standalone release. Uh, I appreciate that the fact that they gave it a little bit of a discount there, uh, the bare bones edition and all that. Uh, notwithstanding, uh, this is a film that's worth owning and worth rewatching, especially since it appears to have disappeared from Hulu. <laughs> yeah, which is too bad. And it looks so nice next to Summer with Monica on the shelf. Well, it's a nice <laughs> set. You, if you got one, you got to have the other, right? Exactly. Uh, Trevor, have we done this film justice? I think so. It's been wonderful to talk about it. Um, there, it, it's just a, a great film. I did have two quick little thoughts, though. One, yeah, do it. One related to what David was just saying about the steals that they chose. I love the cover for this one because of that that moment. You know, that's a beautiful moment yes. of, of of joyful. He's you know he he's about to push her just a little bit. Um, you know, if you watch the movie, you know he doesn't quite push her in or anything like that. But just a wonderful moment of vibrancy. But it's also a moment that uh, kind of foreshadows the the tragedy of this film. Um, you know, kind of on the perch up there, about to make this uh, dive, and everything's been going great, and then boom, it's it can be all over in just a second. So I love how the cover. Uh, plays with that uh, uh, that duality in the film. Um, my other thought was at, at the beginning we talked about uh, the early Bergman set just a little bit, and I wanted to to bring that up a little bit again. Um, you know, I I do think that this is a transitionary. Uh, 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 um, did I say that word right? Is it transitional? Transitional. <laughs> transitional. <laughs> like, that didn't that didn't sound right. Transitional piece. Um, that does, I mean, I love a lot of the films in that set. I, I really love To Joy, which also stars Nielsen and Stieg Olin. Um, but I don't think any of them quite uh, compare with this one. And I do think that this one starts to turn the door and have Bergman. I can see why he considered it uh, significant to him as something unique, something that was personal. And, I, you know, as we... Uh, discussed a little bit earlier there are a lot of elements in this film that are in his later films and they're not really elements that you can find in his earlier films um you know thirst might be a little tiny bit like the silence there are some images that go back you know that relate but it's not quite in the same way uh, to joy is its own beast um uh, port of call is some neo-realist uh experiment for Bergman and crisis is very much just this, uh, you know, youth, uh, uh, piece that, that it's this uh, coming of age yeah. movie where he's kind of breaking out. I mean, I think, yeah, I think to joy with its you know, focus on the orchestra and the symphonic scene, there's a nice corollary to summer interlude. I don't think the movies were made exactly back to back, but pretty fairly close together. And, uh, yeah. So just, you know, again, Bergman's immersion into the, 
you know, artistic, theatrical, cultural scene, and and even some of the you know some of the conventional wisdom, some of the the self talk that uh, stage performers you know both give themselves, give to each other, and kind of rely on to get through the rigors of a life that's dedicated to art. I think you see that coming through in those two films, yeah. and of course his his relationship with the theater continued all the way you know through, and and so that that wisdom. Uh, yeah, that that's a that's a just part of the fabric of of his movies that kind of unifies his body of work. Yeah, with the great Victor Schulstrom and Tajoy uh, kind of being the elder uh, uh, performer and knowledgeable person who's talking to the young people through it all. It's it's wonderful. Uh, but one thing that I do think carries through is I do. Uh, while I think that um, Marie's character in Summer Interlude is a very interesting, maybe the first time he's ever really devoted the entire picture to the, a female character, something that he'll do beautifully throughout his career, I think. Um, it's not that the female characters in his earlier works are just, uh, you know, stand-ins or anything like that. They have He, he does have um, fully realized characters in that as well. And, uh, you know, maybe a, a great place to, to look at that would be Maj Britt Nielsen in To Joy. I think she's just a wonderful character. Um, so that's something that I do think he never, uh, you know, maybe he realized it a little bit better with Summer Interlude, but it it's something that he was always interested in. Yeah, I think he talked about this kind of being the, a film where he realized his interest in putting a woman at the center of it. You know, as good as Nielsen is in To Joy, I think, making her the anchor of this film was a smart decision, especially since this was kind of somewhat based on a similar affair Bergman had around the same age, uh, which he wrote into a short story that then became this film. But by switching the genders, uh, I think it's, I think it gives him the sort of distance that he can be a little bit more adventurous with the characterizations, you know, to joy. It's kind of this asshole guy against this sweet understanding woman, uh, but here they're kind of there's kind of an even give between the two characters that I think works really well and kind of informs his later work where he'd take these kind of personal experiences and themes and twist them in a different way or see them from a different perspective. So in, in that way too, I think it's a tra- what did we say transitional work? <laughs> yes, that's the word. <laughs> uh, well, Arik, this has been your first time on the show, so I'll give you the last word regarding this film unless there's nothing left to say <laughs> always something left to say maybe um yeah i did have i, I do have one or two things i yeah, wanted of to say though um so one thing i wanted to mention that we kind of talked around it and i just wanted to sort of maybe say it directly which is that the other thing i think this film does absolutely perfectly is represent uh what it's like to be uh in a relationship at like 15 like the the awkward ridiculous uh, over trying, over promising, big statement, goofy, just just perfectly captures two what two fifteen year olds you know who think they're in love and, and this and that. And I just think it's it's just uh, uh, brilliantly done with the, the the way that they they did that, and that's not an easy thing to do, especially you know as as directors get older and stuff like that. And I know Bergman was not particularly old at this point, but he wasn't fifteen, so it's I think that's worth calling out. It's just really one of the best representations of sort of young love that I've. That I've seen, and then the other thing that I wanted to say was that, um, as as David mentioned, uh, you know, it's a bare bones release. There's no supplements of any kind. There is, as he says, a truly phenomenal book, and it's not just that the pictures are great. It's got a really, really great essay from um, uh, Peter Cowie, and I just wanted to quote one of the lines from it that I thought was just really uh, helpful to me in terms of 
uh, as I was thinking about this film in preparation for this podcast. And um, it's about the brilliant performance of Maj Britt Nilsson. And what he says is, uh, Nilsson's performance persuades us that in the course of the story, she matures from a girlish pertness to an acknowledgement of life's inadequacies, the finite nature of her career, the onset of autumn, the certainty of death. And I don't know why, but I just was like, ah, oh, that like sums up Bergman, sums up this movie. It's just a really solid, great, great quote. So I thought I would, I would share it. And then I just say that this has been a, a, a pleasure. Um, hopefully I can, uh, can, can come back from some, for some of the other Bergman films, because uh, they're just so much fun to talk about. Yeah, well, I meant to say so up front, but this is kicking off our Summer with Bergman series, and we'll be next tackling Summer with Monica, followed by Smiles of a Summer Night, and I hope to have all of you back for each of those. Uh, so let's make that happen for sure. Wonderful. I'm committed, definitely. Excited. All right. Uh, well, thanks very much for joining me tonight, you guys. Uh, thanks, listeners out there, for listening, and uh, we'll see you before autumn. Good night. Summertime And the living is easy Fish are jumping And cotton is high